Larry, and good morning, church. It's great to worship with you this morning. And uh, we've been walking through the, uh, this great hall of faith of Hebrews 11 and, and looking at some of these ancient men who lived to be really old and some of the patriarchs who lived a lot older than our folks. And I, I realized that over the last couple of weeks that some of my sermons have gotten a little bit longer. And, um, you know, um, I, I just want you to know there's a little bit of hope because Esther and Paul Cast gave me a Christmas book, a Christmas gift. It's a book that says, How to Land a Plane. <laughs> and if you're just visiting us, that is the metaphor for ending the sermon, uh, landing the plane. And I thought, when I first saw it, I've, I've got a lot of the Nine Marks books, and it looks exactly that size. So I thought it was a book on, like, you know, how to, how to wrap up your sermon, how to, you know, sit down and shut up, right? And in reality, you know, it's actually a book about landing airplanes, which is actually quite a good thing because uh, as a private pilot with only a few hours, in fact, just enough hours to be dangerous, I'm going to bring this up with me next time, just in case, you know, I forget. And if any of you want to come along, we can split gas. So let me know if you're interested. But I'm going to actually set this right here as a reminder. Um, so hopefully we won't go too long this morning. And I got word this, this morning that, that, uh, that um, the brands are with us. Are, are you guys here? Phil and, Phil and uh, hey, there, there you are, Phil and Christiana. Welcome, guys. Uh, we're glad to have you back from Prague. Uh, I hear you're going to be kind of in and out of town. Is that right? So make sure you get a chance this morning, if you haven't already, to, to welcome the brands. And we'll, um, we'll, we'll get a chance, I hope, in the next couple months to get a, get a live report from them. But our... our Sermon text this morning is certainly one that, that as I spent more time this week, uh, I, I realized this is a tough text. You know, I thought, no problem, you know, I've got that story, Abraham, Isaac, you know, how, you know, points to Jesus and all that. Uh, well, then I started getting into this, and this is an extraordinarily difficult text, but I, I hope and I pray that, that God will speak to your hearts this morning. Um, I, I kind of started the week a little bit flippantly, got into it started wrestling even with the text, and ended with worship. And, and, and so I, I hope, uh, I hope uh, that, that that will be your experience as well. Um, but one thing that I want to start with is that our faith matters to God. And that's what I see in this text, and I, and I hope it will come clearly through in this sermon, that your faith, even when it doesn't make sense, really does matter. To the Lord. It's very important to him that we have no other gods before him. And what that means is that there's nothing or no one in our lives, good or bad, that are more important to us than him. So let's, let's look at our text again, which is Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. And mystery man who wrote Hebrews says that by faith Abraham when he was tested. And let me just stop right there. The more I thought about this story in Genesis 22, I thought tested is an understatement, if there ever was an understatement. When he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him up from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we're going to kind of 
consider this, this story in three parts this morning. We're going we're gonna to first, part one of the sermon, go back to Genesis chapter 2 and, and let's just feel and experience as best we can what Abraham went through in, in this story from his vantage point since we're reading about his faith here. And then we're going to get into the application for us and then we'll land the plane with the connection to Christ. All right, so let's start by looking at the story. So if you will, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, early in the book, uh, early in the Bible, Genesis chapter 22, and God has already revealed himself to Abraham. God has spoken clearly to Abraham. Abraham has learned to discern and to recognize the voice of God. And then in Abraham chapter, or I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 22, here we see the Lord again appear before Abraham, and we read in, in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, ready, at your service. There's, a, there's an eagerness here to Abraham's voice. He wants to hear what God has to say to him. God had told him a number of things before. God had, had called him to leave his his homeland, to leave his extended family, to become a nomad. Abraham had done that. God had appeared to Abraham and, and, and promised him a son. And of course, Abraham had, had kind of tried in his own uh, power with his own wisdom. Um, and you know, things got a whole lot more complicated for the world because of that, right? The, the descendants of Ishmael and Isaac to this day uh, have a lot of conflict going on that has affected everybody. But God had appeared to Abraham and said, no, it's going to be through Sarah's son. And, 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 and even gave this son a name, Isaac. And in a sense, you know, Isaac's name meant laughter, like joyful laughter. We remembered last week that Sarah had laughed with disbelief, but when Isaac was born, she, she, her laugh was one of joy and, and faith. And, and so in a sense, it's almost like heaven laughing, not in derision, but joy at the fruit of faith for a a 100-year-old man and a 91-year-old woman to have a baby, to have a son, the promised heir, who would be the the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather with more greats in there of the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. This was God's plan. He had promised Abraham that, that he would take Isaac and turn him into a nation. So Abraham's ready. What is God going to say now? He's ready to do it. And here's what God says in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 22. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Abraham had already sent Ishmael off at this point. Isaac was the son of promise. And he says, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Can you imagine how Abraham's heart fell at this word from God? I can't even imagine. Al Mohler writes this. He says, we know what a burnt offering is. A burnt offering happens when an animal is slain, its blood is drained, and its carcass is burned. Any father told to do this to his son would be tested beyond anything he could possibly imagine. And this is how Abraham was tested. 
Pastor Kent Hughes imagines Abraham's emotional reaction. He writes, immediate horror fell on Abraham's soul, and revulsion repeatedly welled up in dark waves of emotional nausea. God was calling him to put Isaac to death with his own hand, and then to incinerate the remains as a burnt offering to God. This divine command was contrary to everything in Abraham, his common sense, his natural affections, his lifelong dream. I just got back last night from a quick backpacking trip with my son. I could tell you as a father, I don't know how I could pass the test that was put before Abraham. And I'm glad to know, based on God's completed revelation, and based on Christ's work on the cross, that I'll never have to. In fact, if, if one of you or if somebody came up to me and told me that God had commanded them to sacrifice their child today, based on the authority of Scripture, I would say, no, he didn't. And we could spend a lot of time looking, on God's, looking at the God's prohibitions against the wickedness of human sacrifice that we saw throughout the ancient world. All right? But before any of that was written, before God gave his law to Moses, God did clearly command Abraham to do this thing as a test. One thing that needs to be clear in our mind, this was a clear word from God to Abraham. All right? It wasn't a crazy dream. It wasn't anything where he could go back and say, hey, maybe I got that wrong. It was clear revelation. And Abraham obeyed God. In fact, our, our, test, our text says here in verse 17 of, of Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham offered up Isaac. In, in the Greek, it's actually a perfect tense, which signifies past action. In other words, Abraham did it in his heart, and he was going to go through with it. It wasn't a fake. He wasn't, he wasn't you know, faking things out, just hoping God would relent. He purposed to go through with this. So let's look at verse 3 of Genesis chapter 22. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and I'm just, I'm just going to imagine that he said nothing to Sarah about this. I mean, how could he? How could he? Settled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. So there, there, was, no, there was no procrastinating or delay. Immediately he rose in the morning and he prepared. He, he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, there, there are 45 miles from Beersheba, where Abraham was dwelling at the time, and Jerusalem, which was the actual place that Mount Moriah was located. Um, 45 miles, that's a three-day journey by, by foot. These were, these were some strong folks back then, right? Tim and I did 22 miles in two days. Tim, isn't that right? Were you tired, son? Yeah, I was a little tired too. Um, you know, as Dan puts it, God didn't design us to be pack animals, right? You know, um, well, these are tough people. The more I read, I mean, you know, these folks, they could just go burn 20 miles in a day, you know, take what they needed. I'm sure they traveled light. Abraham's leading a donkey, two men with what he needs for a burnt offering, uh, not a whole lot of wood in that part of the world. And so it was a three-day journey, we read. 
On the third day, Abraham lifts his eyes and he sees it from afar, the dreaded Mount Moriah. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went. So both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. In, in Hebrew, it's Abi, which means daddy or dearest father. He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now we don't know Isaac's age here, but clearly he was old enough to carry the wood for the burnt offering up Mount Moriah and understand what was going on. Hey, we're, we're, we're going to worship and sacrifice to God. We've got everything we need, but where's the animal? Where's the sacrifice? Jewish rabbinic tradition actually held that Isaac was already a grown man. But again, we don't see that anywhere in the text. My best guess is that he was a young teenager, strong enough to, to understand what's going on, to, to be able to be the beast of burden, so it was, to carry all this wood. It took a good bit of wood to, to burn a, an offering. But he clearly, deeply trusted his father. That's why I'm thinking a younger teenager. But maybe an older one, a real godly older one. No offense, kiddos. So we read, they both went together. Can you imagine what was going on in Abraham's mind and in Abraham's heart each step up Mount Moriah? I'm sure that, I'm sure that with every step he hoped, he, he prayed that God would show him another way. I'm sure he quietly begged God as he climbed this dreaded mountain, as any loving father would do. Please, spare my son. Take me instead. We read in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, it seems to me, again, this is reading in between the lines a little bit, that Isaac submitted to his dad. All right, let's remember Abraham's age, okay? Even, even though I, I'm think, Abraham lived to be 175, let's say Isaac was 15, where, Isaac's born when Abraham's 100 years old, that'd be 115. Now, looking at the time span of his life, I'm thinking 115 years old would be a very young 115 years old, all right, in the time, if you, if you kind of crunch the numbers, but you're still talking about an old man and a young man, a young man who could clearly outrun and probably out-wrestle his dad if he needed to. I can only imagine the interchange between Abraham and his son at the altar when Abraham had to explain to his son what he had to do. Pastor Hughes imagines when Abraham made his terrible intention known, Isaac began to shudder. 
both wept aloud as Isaac submitted himself to be bound for slaughter upon the altar. Abraham's heart pounded and he gasped for air. His wet eyes closed in darkness as he raised the blade to its apex and his fingers tightened for the plunge. We read in verse 11 of Genesis chapter 22, right as Abraham is ready and is, is in motion even, you get this, this, this idea here. His, he has his hand and the knife and he's ready to slaughter his son that God calls out. We read, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. If there's ever three words of relief in the Bible, here they are. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Later in the story of of God's revelation and grace to to, to us in Second Chronicles chapter three, verse one, we, we actually learn that Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah, which came to be known as Mount Zion. So let's talk about part two, the application of this story. Well, obeying God is a vital part of real faith. The the, the brother of Jesus, James, writes in James chapter 2, verse 21, as he's, as he's trying to, to make his point that faith without works is dead. In other words, it's false faith. It's not real faith, okay? Demons, right, believe, but they don't obey God. So James actually points back and he uses this very story of Abraham as an example of the obedience of faith. So James writes, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now, James is not actually teaching us that we are saved by what we do but we're saved by a faith that works and so Abraham's faith was completed by his action or by his works his faith his belief in God led to incredible obedience and Abraham's faith meant something to God it it meant a lot to God and and and, and try to listen to this in God's voice, right? The, the appreciation, the love, the regard that God had for Abraham's faith in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So obedience to God is a vital part of real faith. Our obedience means a lot to the Lord. Trusting God is also part and a vital part of real faith. Trusting God. And by trusting God, I mean trusting in his promises even when they seem to contradict our present situation. Even when we just don't see how God's going to come through. How what I'm dealing with now squares with what God has promised. Trusting God. And, and God had made some clear promises to Abraham about his son Isaac. In Genesis chapter 15, God promised Abraham that Isaac would indeed be his heir. All right? In Genesis chapter 17, God promised Abraham that God himself would make an everlasting covenant with Isaac. And the nations and, and, and kings would come from his line. And, and that hadn't happened yet, right? Isaac was not yet a father. He did not have children yet. Verse 18 of our, of our text this morning says that through Isaac, your offspring will be named. Abraham knew that. That promise was in his mind. And, and therefore, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 actually gives us a little more insight that thus we have not yet seen into what was going on in Abraham's mind as he followed God's command, as he obeyed God's command and as he trusted in God's character. And that is that because Abraham trusted God to be true to his promises, he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he went through with the deed. Verse 19 says, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We see that Abraham, remember in the story, told his men that he and the boy would return from the mountain. And Abraham, I don't know if he thought about it or not, whether he was going to certainly need some counseling, father-son counseling probably after that one. But I'll tell you this, I, I, I see implied in this story Isaac's trust as well as Abraham's. In fact, not only Isaac's trust in his daddy, but Isaac's trust in God. Again, that's not in the text, but I, I, I just imagine that Isaac likely told his dad to do it, to obey God. How, how else would he have submitted? I don't know if you've ever tried to trust or had to trust the Lord with something hard and something big. I, I remember struggling to trust the Lord and his promises and trying to figure out what exactly are his promises for my firstborn daughter when we we're sensing his leading and calling to take our young family to Afghanistan to, to make Christ known. And, and I, I was searching the Bible looking for, I wanted a bulletproof promise that God was going to protect Grace and that he would take her to heaven if anything happened. And I remember struggling. And I remember struggling even with people's reactions. People in our own church. I remember finally just having to literally offer her up to the Lord and say, she's yours. 
Please take care of her. You see, true faith is scandalous in the eyes of the world. Jesus said that if we're to follow him, we must love him more than even our closest family members. That's what he said in Matthew 10, 37 through 38. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Like, (laughs) that's what he said. He meant those words. Those weren't metaphorical. They were literal. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And so genuine, real faith obeys God and it trusts God, but it also loves God. Loving God is a part of real faith, and that means loving God above all else. And this is a challenge for me, constantly through life. I I, I find myself loving other ones and other things more than God, and I have to repent from that. Loving God above all else, and Abraham showed in this story that he truly loved God even more than the son in whom he delighted. And so that brings the question up that I think we need to ask ourselves. Do we love God because of his worthiness to us or because of the tangible things that he gives us? And you know, this is a a really important question. In fact, this mirrors Satan's accusation against God in the very first chapter of Job, that, that nobody would really love God for who he is. That's what, that's what Satan was, was charging God with that, that kick-started all of Job's suffering, was that God was not worthy of being followed or loved by his creatures, that they were, he, God was only loved because of the, the, the good things that he gave his creatures and, and to the protection that he afforded his, his creatures from pain and suffering. But nobody would love God for himself. And that's why God pointed out Job. He said, well, have you considered my servant Job? I'm sure Job was like, thanks a lot. But, but you know what? God was proud of Job. And Job struggled. Job doubted. But Job endured in faith. Loving God when the chips are down, really, really matters to God. And we need to remember, and I hope you'll take comfort in this fact. If, if, you're, if you're kind of like that father who said, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, I love, help my unlove, help me love you more. We need to remember that we're only able to love him because he first loved us. So this week, I was wrestling with this story. As a father, I was actually wondering and asked God, why, why would you do this to a father? Why would you put a father through this test? And, of course, I wasn't really asking just for Abraham. I was pondering some bigger and even more personal questions. And it hit me that maybe instead of thinking about how God could test a man like this, I should think more about How incredible it is that our God did it himself for us, for me, for you. God himself actually did what he asked Abraham to do at the cross. He sacrificed his son for our sake. And we may think, well, it was the Romans. It was the Jews. It was these wicked people. No, it was 
God who had this plan from eternity past. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaac walked back down the mountain with his daddy. Jesus was indeed slain by his on a hill called Calvary. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely prophesied hundreds of years before the event. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This is what the Bible talks about when it says God loved us. In Romans 5:8, we read, But God demonstrated or, or shows his love for us in that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. Talk about costly love. Now maybe you're with Abraham up on Mount Moriah. Maybe you've been there up on the dreaded Mount Moriah. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you were there this last week. Maybe it was a few months ago and you were there. And maybe you're battling for faith with each step up your own Moriah. Spanish philosopher Miguel de Unamundo wrote this. And I want you to listen to these words and and maybe you you might have to struggle with them a little bit. But he wrote, those who believe that they believe in God but without passion in their hearts, without anguish in mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, without an element of despair, even in their consolation, believe only in the God idea, not God himself. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, we must understand then that faith that never doubts is a dead faith because it is never exercised. The road to strong faith is never smooth. Faith will be tested. Inevitably, there will be times of uncertainty and doubt and even despair. But the soul that clings to God will experience growth and notable triumphs of faith. And I say all this, church, not to encourage you to doubt, okay? Um, uh, James tells us that, that doubting is like being tossed by wind and wave. However, I want to encourage you who do doubt at times, that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief, pharisaical unbelief and coldness of heart is the opposite of faith. So when you come to those storms and and you're up on Moriah and you are struggling with doubt, I encourage you to take those doubts to God. Go to his word that through those doubts your faith may grow because that can lead to a stronger belief if it's dealt with through the eyes of faith. And as you struggle, 
I, I hope you will remember that God loves you. God loved Abraham, and God loved Isaac, and God loved Sarah back at home while they were on Mount Moriah. And that may be hard to believe it sometimes, because we, we, we see one thing at a time, right? God sees the whole picture, the end from the beginning. And in our hard experiences, we can question that. I, I, I read a book years ago, in fact, someone gave it to me back during the years we were in Afghanistan, and I read this over there. And it's called Children Are Images of Grace, written by a pediatric oncologist named Diane Kampf. She teaches at the Yale, I don't know if she's still teaching there, she used to teach at the Yale School of Medicine. I want you to stop and think about her job, okay? Every day she is treating children who, by the time they got to her, had terminal cancer, all right? And most of the treatments she's giving these young children hurt. So she's one who, these very vulnerable, broken children are part of her life every day, and she's actually giving them treatment to try to help, but it's helping that hurts. And so she struggled to believe in a God who would allow young children to get cancer. In fact, she basically lost her faith, and yet God gave that faith back through her young patients. And basically this book is a series of stories of her young patients, young children, a number of them who came from non-Christian families who literally had dreams of Jesus and would share their dreams with her. And that is how she came to, to give her heart to Jesus Christ, through the witness of these young patients. They had literal dreams. She tells the story of a, of a, of a young Chinese girl from a, a Buddhist background who had never heard the gospel, who had dreams of Jesus Christ, of Jesus. And a lot of these kids went to be with Jesus, and she took care of them as they went to be with them. And she talked about the peace, the revelation. And she came to trust in him and to give him her heart. She observed that among the children that she treated that, that were from Christian families, their parents, Christian parents, naturally went to three places. By the way, these were not the places that their pastors sent them in the Bible. Okay, so the three stories that on their own Christian parents gravitated towards were Jesus' struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane, the story of Job, and this story of Abraham on Mount Moriah. So, in a number of her chapters, as she's telling stories of, of these families and her children, she often takes a metaphorical look at the climb up Mount Moriah. And she, she talks about the Abrahams and the Sarahs who are having to carry their children up Mount Moriah. And I'm just going to quote one, one line from her entire book, but she, she notes that Sarah's son survived. But Mary's son became the lamb that God provided. So that leads us to our final point this morning, that is the connection. The connection between this story of Abraham and Isaac on Moriah and that of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for us on the cross. So as we land the plane this morning, let's think about 
that connection. And so I'd like to give you three ways, and I think you, some of you are really smart and could come up with other ways, but three ways that this story foreshadows the story of Christ. Well, first of all, the sacrifice. The actual sacrifice foreshadows Christ. And that's pretty easy to see here. We read in verse 13 of Genesis 22, And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. A male lamb caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So let's think for a moment about that ram that God provided as a substitutionary sacrifice. This picture of that hundreds of years before it happened at Calvary, right? Well, this was a provided sacrifice that God sovereignly provided for Abraham. And it was a perfect sacrifice without defect. In other words, we we see in the text it was caught by its horns in the thicket, not by its skin in the thicket. This was a perfect sacrifice spotless male lamb and it was a substitutionary sacrifice that God accepted in Isaac's place and so my friends Jesus Christ is the provided and the perfect and the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins all of us left to ourselves are in trouble God is holy right we need a We need a savior. We need a sacrifice. And and so he provided his son who was perfect, the only human to never sin. I mean, if Jesus had given in to temptation, he would not be able to take on the weight of our sin. But because he was the perfect one, the only perfect man, the only perfect human, he was able to be our true representative and to take our sins on him. And he was sacrificial. He gave himself. He he, he struggled with it at Gethsemane. He struggled deeply with his mission, and yet he chose to go to the cross for us. So it was the Father's will, and it was the Son's will that we be saved. John the Baptist in John chapter 129 saw Jesus coming towards him, and he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I hope... I hope he's taken away your sin. I hope that you've given him your heart, that you've put your faith in him. If you have not, let today be that day that you trust in the provided, the perfect, and the substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus. Well here, and this one might take a little more imagination, but I see a foreshadowing not only of the sacrifice, but of the resurrection. According to Genesis chapter two, Abraham had a three-day journey to Moriah. And at this point in the story of the Bible, no one had ever come back from the dead. Later it happened before Christ. But at this point in the story of the Bible, we don't see anyone resurrecting from the dead. And yet Abraham considered that the, the Greek word in Hebrews 11 is, is like he, he, he reasoned that God would raise his son to fulfill his promises, because he thought he was going to have to go through with it. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so we see here a foreshadowing of the sacrifice and the resurrection, but before we go home, I, I hope that you will 
think about this and that you will take this home with you because this has really helped my heart and my soul this week to appreciate and to worship my gracious and loving God, my Father. We see here at the story of Abraham, God's fatherly anguish foreshadowed. I wondered, how could God allow a man he loves to go through this trauma? I mean, how could God tell him, you know, engineer it even? He was showing us a picture of what he was going to go through for our sake. Because God was really willing to sacrifice his son for us. He did it. This was a son that God the Father loved more than Abraham loved Isaac. More than I loved Tim. More than you love your son. He loved him with a perfect love. None of us dads, as much as we love our sons, have perfect love. God the Father does. And yet he was really willing to sacrifice his son for us. And so Abraham's anguish on Mount Moriah foreshadowed the Father's anguish on Mount Calvary. And so let's be sure brothers and sisters, that we do not allow familiarity to blunt amazement. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to really stand in amazement at your love and your sacrifice of your son for us and for all who would call on the name of the Lord for salvation. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has yet to receive your grace, that anyone here who has not yet come through faith into your family, I pray that today would be the day that they would be able to call you Father. And Lord, for us who do, Lord, I pray that we would appreciate your fatherness. Lord, I pray that we would take comfort in your fatherness, that, that we would live in relationship with you as our Heavenly Father. And we pray in the awesome name of our hero, of your most beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.